A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I have you loud and clear. Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello! Welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Phil Sansom. And with me, Chris Smith. Coming up, the practical challenges behind the largest mass vaccination campaign in history. Also, cutting carbon emissions from crisps and why have pandas been rolling in poo. Plus, it's Beethoven's 250th birthday. We're asking what today's tech tells us about the iconic composer's music and whether computers have become powerful enough to take the same creative steps. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This week, there was much to celebrate. Staff clapped as 90-year-old Margaret Keenan left hospital, having become the first person in the world outside a clinical trial to receive Pfizer's COVID vaccine. Nurse May Parsons had the job of administering it. I think um, it's a tremendous historical event and, and I'm so proud to be able to contribute to that positive step towards stopping this pandemic. And an emotional Matt Hancock, UK Health Secretary, was moved to tears by the week's developments. It's been, you know, it's been such a tough year for so many people and, you know, there's still a few months ago, I've still got this worry that we've still got to get the vaccine to millions of people. Indeed, it's a tall order. So how is the vaccine going to get to those millions? Michael Head is a senior research fellow in global health and he's at the University of Southampton. Well, this is a wonderful day for science. It's a wonderful day for research and it's a wonderful day for the UK National Health Service. But of course, this is very much just a starting point. We need to vaccinate the entire country and we need to vaccinate the entire world as much as we possibly can. So there is still a lot of work to do from here, but this is an excellent start. Indeed, I think Andrew Pollard from the Oxford Vaccine Group described it as analogous to being at Everest Base Camp. Absolutely. So we've dragged ourselves up a little bit of the mountain. We've cleared some rather forbidding looking cliffs at the bottom of it. But the peak is still away in the cloud at the very top. So there is a long way to go. 16 billion doses of a vaccine to cover the entire planet. Talk us through then what really we've got to do here in the UK to begin our ascent of the peak. So we are starting with healthcare workers care workers and very soon in the next week or two vaccinations will be taken into care homes. There's then other older populations and people who are particularly clinically vulnerable. Beyond that it'll be rolled out to the rest of the population. Do we have any plans or or clear guidance yet as to how they intend to do this because we've got a vaccine here that needs to be kept at minus 70 degrees until about the last five days during which you intend to use it it comes in batches of 975 doses which means you've got to basically have a queue with that number of people in it to avoid wasting any vaccine this is quite a lot of constraints 
Absolutely. So the initial plan was that care home residents will be in the very first wave of vaccinations. But due to these logistical constraints around the minus 70 degrees storage, that's been postponed for a week or so whilst the fine tuning of the logistics are being worked out. The Pfizer candidates, wonderful though it is, does come with extra challenges that some of the other vaccine candidates don't. Well, you've brought up the question of other vaccine candidates. Can we talk now about the AstraZeneca offering? They have published a paper in The Lancet this week in which they give some of the data from their phase three trial. Is there anything in there which we need to be aware of? So the findings that were published in The Lancet today reflect what was mentioned in the press release about three weeks back. So there's no real surprises. So we can see, for example, that the average effectiveness is around 60 something percent. But if you take the as it turns out, accidental small dose and then scale up to a full second dose, that raises the effectiveness to about 90%. The problems we have is there's not too much data about these doses in the elderly, the older populations, and the accidental dose there, again, there's not too many people who were given that dose. So it certainly looks very, very promising, and I think we probably will see it approved at some point, maybe pre-Christmas, if not very early in the new year, What appears to have happened is, according to AstraZeneca, a subgroup of people in their trial got a smaller dose than they should have done when they were first given the vaccine, and then they got the full dose next. Why should there be a better response, a 90% outcome, instead of a 60% outcome in terms of protection, when you do it like that? Well, it's a very intriguing finding, and I think we're still waiting to really find out why. The theory is that the first smaller dose primes the immune system, and then you get a much better, stronger response when you add the second dose. It remains to be seen precisely what immunological curiosities are going on there, but that's the theory right now, as far as I understand it. The problem, as I see it, is that people will see the Pfizer data, and it says this is 95% effective, or so we presume, and they'll see the AstraZeneca data, and it might be as low as 60%. For a vaccine, that's still pretty good, isn't it? But people will say, well, hang on, that doesn't look as good as the other one. So I want the Pfizer one. Is this going to create a problem, a two tier system, perhaps a postcode lottery even for who gets what? And therefore, could that lead to problems? There may be some tensions. So I think we do need to be prepared for that. I think what people are probably hoping is that the 90% effectiveness as referred to in the Lancet paper for that small dose followed by full dose from the Oxford candidate. People are probably hoping that that comes to the fore and is the answer in terms of what effectiveness is the Oxford candidate. The other question which is coming up quite a lot is this uncertainty around whether or not someone who has been vaccinated can still nevertheless catch the virus. Now why has that uncertainty arisen? Why are people who are vaccinated not completely protected and is this just a theoretical risk or do you think actually there there probably is something in this? So with the Oxford AstraZeneca candidate they've been testing their study participants weekly so we can look at asymptomatic transmission so although the vaccine protects you from getting ill it may not protect you from getting infected and theoretically being able to pass it on which is what we think may be happening with the Pfizer vaccine it prevents you from getting ill rather preventing you from getting infected. Michael Head there. 
Let's dive into the animal world now with a report on some unusual giant panda behavior. Scientists have discovered that the creatures have a penchant for rolling in fresh horse manure in winter. They think the muck contains chemicals that deaden the panda's ability to feel the cold. Katie Haler explains. Using infrared cameras to observe a year of giant pandas in the wild, scientists in China have documented around 40 incidences of these bears sniffing, wallowing in and rubbing horse manure. Yep, horse manure all over themselves, particularly in the colder months. So to reflect on this rather, at least to my ears, unusual finding, I spoke to Anglia Ruskin behavioural biologist Claudia Vasher. It is quite unusual to actually see a species rolling in the feces of another animal. Individuals avoid going close to feces because potentially uh, these materials can have parasites, which animals can get affected with, or bacteria. So, yeah, it is quite unusual. Now, I'm no panda expert, but I wouldn't have thought they spend that much time around horses. But it seems the ancient trading routes that cross the bears' habitats have brought these animals in close proximity. And timing is important here because it seems the fresher the feces, the better. So they have compared how often does this behaviour occur when there is fresh manure compared to older ones. And it is most frequent in the first couple of days. Lovely. So why on earth are pandas giving themselves a horse poo spa treatment? They think that there is a specific chemical component in the horse feces, uh, which is an adaption to cold. So basically rubbing in the horse feces would then make the pandas feel less cold. In addition to that beautiful monochromatic fur, the theory is that pandas are cleverly seeking out additional ways of staving off the chill at colder times of the year, mostly November through to April. Don't think about it like having another coat on or having a pullover on, but it is more of a reaction similar to if you would uh, eat a hot pepper, you would feel warm because there are certain chemicals in the food which cause a chemical reaction, uh, which causes this sensation in your body. And this is a similar case. Claudia is talking about beta-caryophylline or caryophylline oxide. Chemical analysis showed that they're particularly prevalent in fresh horse manure. And tests with giant pandas at Beijing Zoo suggested that they seem to prefer hay with these chemicals on compared to controls. And because this poo rolling seemed to be temperature dependent, the scientists wondered if these chemicals could have a role in how animals sense temperature. They have chemically extracted this component from the horse feces and have then injected the mice either with this chemical component or with a saline uh, solution. And then they have looked in the mice what kind of behaviours they display in response to cold. And the mice showed more behaviours which I expected as an adaption to cold, so more shaking behaviours with the control substance. And this hints towards that the mice injected with this chemical component uh, would feel less cold. So what are these chemicals getting up to? The authors did some laboratory work to delve into this question, and I asked Claudia to summarise. This chemical component actually responds to a specific 
channel um, within the nervous system. What basically happens is that the sensation of cold is a specific sensation, which means that certain parts of the body respond to a certain environmental condition. So certain nervous cells in the skin, activation in these nervous cells would cause us feeling cold. These nerve cells are inhibited by this chemical component. So the authors reckon that on a molecular level, these chemicals are blocking receptors involved in cold sensation. Fair play to giant pandas. Seems rather clever to make the most of the surrounding environment like this. Others are less convinced. In the Science Journal magazine this week, the University of Glasgow's Malcolm Kennedy points out that perhaps the pandas are just curious about this horse manure. And that if this lack of feeling chilly were to stop pandas seeking shelter against the cold... This could be highly problematic. Turns out that rubbing stuff all over oneself is not without precedent in the animal kingdom. There's a whole group of self-anointing behaviours where vertebrates or different groups of animals rub themselves in some sort of biological substance. Feces of other species, soil materials, plant materials, they're usually very poorly investigated. This is one of the first studies like this, which I'm also seeing. This opens up a lot of avenues for future research. Well, my dog seems to have a penchant for self-anointing too. Oda Fox appears to be his particular choice du jour at the moment. But uh, we also don't know whether the horses that produce the manure in the first place, maybe they get a benefit uh, of, of winter clothes from the chemicals that are coming out of what they they put on the ground we don't know that was claudia vasher from anglia ruskin university commenting on that study that came out this week in the journal pnas why do kittens puppies and human animals play from pets rough and tumbling with each other to team sports Join me, Katie Haler, as I find out why larking about is so important for health. Check out Naked Neuroscience on the Naked Scientist website or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up in a moment, the eco-friendly fertilizer set to make crisps 70% greener and... Are computers any good at making decent music? That sounds good to me. Before that, though, news that humanity has crossed an environmental milestone. The total amount of man-made materials has this year passed the point where it now outweighs all life on Earth. This comes from a calculation by scientists at the Weizmann Institute in Israel. They've compared the total dry biomass on the planet to all human-made constructions and materials. It reinforces the idea that we're living in a new era known as the Anthropocene, defined by our changes to the planet. Jan Zalashevich is a geologist at the University of Leicester. He's been part of the calculations into this kind of thing in the past, and he's kindly agreed to take a look at the study, which is out this week in the journal Nature, for us. Uh, Jan, what sort of numbers are we talking about here? It's a very big number. It's a a little bit over a trillion tonnes. Both all the stuff we've made and also it's the weight of all life on Earth. 
How did they arrive at these figures, though, and how accurate are they? How do you go about weighing, in inverted commas, all of the life on Earth and then weighing all the stuff we've made? They're both sets of estimates, and now they're estimates made as, if you like, as rigorously and honestly as possible. Let's say of all the life on Earth, that includes um, forests, which one can observe by satellite measure, and the biologist gets some idea of how many trees there are, let's say, for a square kilometre of ground and factor that in. There are more tricky calculations, you know, all the fish in the sea, all the bacteria in the soil, all the bacteria in the rocks beneath the soil. Now, there are error bars and all of those figures, but taken together, the figures are a reasonable picture and a very large proportion of the living weight are forests. They make up probably something of the order of 90%. For the, the other measurements, the stuff we make, there are statistics around collected by government institutes, government surveys, uh, you know, industrial bodies on things like um, the metals we pull out of the ground, the limestone and mud that we pull out of the ground to make cement, which goes into concrete. There are people who collect materials on uh, industrial production. So this team has taken all of those diverse statistics and put them together to arrive at a headline global figure. Not just one figure for today, but they've calculated back to the beginning of the 20th century. And one of the extraordinary things they've shown is just how, particularly since the mid-20th century, the amount of stuff we made has gone up and up. It's been doubling uh, about every 20 years. I was going to ask you how fast it was changed, because obviously the, the rate of change is the key thing. So that means literally by as soon as 2040, instead of there being one trillion tonnes of human-made stuff, there's going to be two trillion tonnes of human-made stuff. Now, you were part of another study historically that's actually called the Technosphere study. That was in 2016, wasn't it? And that study attempted to put a, a weight or a mass on all the stuff we've moved around on the Earth's surface. That was a lot bigger. I mean, the, the results from that study suggested we've, we've scraped up 30 trillion tonnes of seafloor, made that much concrete, metal, manufactured things, and so on. So what's the distinction between that study and this one? That's right. We were comparing two different aspects of, of the way we've changed the Earth. This present study is simply things we've made. But to make those things, you also need to get materials uh, out of the ground, and also when we build things, we landscape the ground to grow our food. We need to shift soil around. We scrape the seafloor when we trawl for fish and so on. So I think the difference between the two studies uh, shows just how much we waste, if you like, in the course of making you know, all of the stuff we make, all of our constructions. What are the take-home messages in this? The fact that we can now say the things we've made outweigh all life on this planet. Is the intention of doing this study to make that poignant, that very poignant point that we now need to watch this planet over which we have stewardship because we're, we're making a very serious dent in it? Indeed, it's to give us a sense of the scale of what we're doing, which I think we lacked before. And of course, there's a price for everything. You know, there's a price in terms of pollution, in terms of the loss of biological species, in terms of global warming, global heating, perhaps, of climate change. Jan, thank you very much. That's Jan Zalashevich. And he's joining us from the University of Leicester, talking about that paper out this week in this poignant week, where the amount of things that we've made now outweigh all the life on Earth. Quite some statement, isn't it? Let's narrow down then our environmental focus to talk about something a little bit closer to home, which is the nation's favorite snack, the crisp. How much carbon is in a crisp? 
if you take into account the carbon footprint for growing the actual potatoes, it's a reasonable amount. Nevertheless, it could soon be 70% lower. And that's because Chris Maker's walkers have adopted a new chemical process that recycles waste carbon dioxide in potato skins and turns them into fertilizer. Developers CCM are intending, initially, to capture carbon dioxide from a nearby brewery while they set everything up at the Chris factory and then embrace other sectors of the food and drink supply chain later on. I heard how it works from CCM CEO Peter Hammond. Walkers have agreed to be the first users of our technology in the food sector, transforming waste from the crisp factory in Leicester into a fertilizer material, which can then be used to grow more potatoes to supply next year's crisps. What's the point? Don't we already have fertilizer? Uh, You do, but unfortunately, fertilizer is a uh, very energy intensive material to produce and doesn't necessarily reach plants in the way that you might hope. So one way or another, it has a very high carbon footprint. What's this technology then? How does it work? What we do is use carbon dioxide to stabilize nutrients that are contained in waste materials from the Walker's factory in Leicester. Those waste materials predominantly come from potatoes, so it's, it's the skins, but it's also carbon dioxide that's produced in the plant. Can you give me any insight into how that works? Because obviously carbon dioxide, that's something that everyone's trying to get rid of, but it's not an easy, easy task. No, that's true. Carbon dioxide is quite unreactive, and so that makes it a difficult customer to get rid of. However, we're very lucky in waste materials that one of the chemicals that's actually relatively freely available in them is ammonia. And that ammonia very much likes to react with carbon dioxide. The first step then is this capture of the CO2 by the ammonia that's held in the liquid. We have to add some additional materials, particularly ones that are high in calcium and also some nitrate material, so that the ammonia that's held there is transformed into ammonium nitrate, which is a really good plant nutrient. And the whole system is stabilized by the creation of calcium carbonate, chalk to most of us. And that helps literally glue the whole system together. So I've got my waste and carbon dioxide going in. And then I've got my ammonium nitrate and calcium carbonate coming out the other end. Absolutely. All stuck onto the organic substrate underneath, which comes from the potato skins. Does it work well enough to make a good amount of fertilizer? And then does that fertilizer itself work well enough? It certainly does. We've actually been testing it for the last six years now. And we found that across the board, we can attain the same yield and growth patterns that you would see with conventional fertilizer. So that's been very encouraging from the start. But also we started to see additional benefits in the soil, which are due to are adding these additional materials that wouldn't be delivered with normal fertilizer materials. Now, Peter, you you also said that sort of the point of all this is dropping carbon emissions. What sort of carbon emissions come out of your process? I mean, obviously you said carbon goes in, but does carbon go out? And how does that compare to fertilizer at the moment? Typically, a ton of nitrogen-based fertilizer will generate between three and a half and six and a half tons of CO2 for every ton of material that's produced. It's a significant yeah, figure. That, that's and a indeed, lot. Yeah, it is. That figure is now dropping down to less than half a ton of outputs from our process. And the reason we can do that is 
we're simply drawing those materials that normally have very energy intensive production routes. We're recovering those from what are currently regarded as waste streams and actually stops them being waste materials. Is that just a drop in the ocean or is that something to write home about? No, it's that use of fertilizer that makes agriculture uh, have such a huge greenhouse gas impact. There's a lot spoken about the methane from cows and that sort of thing, which is obviously significant. But the largest input is coming from the use and misuse of fertilizers. If I, if I just take a sample out, I've got my lunch here. Right, this ready salted crisp, how much savings is there on it compared to how bad it was for the environment before? At least 70%. At least 70%. And two years time, it will be 100% better than it was before. I'm going to tuck in with pride. <laughs> well, it's all very impressive, I have to say, but personally, I'd have gone for the smoky bacon flavour, but each to their own. That was uh, CCM Chief Executive Officer Peter Hammond there. And now it's time for the mailbox, which is the part of the show where we answer your questions. And Luke has gotten in touch to ask, I have recently been hearing that the COVID-19 vaccinations will be introducing new DNA into my body and that this may possibly be meant to hurt me, control me, or even make women sterile. Is there any truth to this? Chris, can you please address Luke's concerns? Uh, Luke, be reassured that is absolutely not the case. I think where this might have come from is that the vaccine that's currently being rolled out in the UK, soon to be in other countries, is Pfizer's vaccine. It's a genetic vaccine. Yes, it doesn't use DNA, though. It uses a related chemical called RNA. It's just one small piece of the genetic code of the virus, and it's used to program cells temporarily to show the immune system what coronavirus outer coat looks like, so you make an immune response. The piece of RNA, the short piece of genetic information that goes in, is quite quickly degraded in the body, so it doesn't hang around very long. There's no permanent rearrangement to your genetic code, and really the difference here between what happens when you catch coronavirus for real and when you're programmed with this vaccine is very, very small. It's very similar to what happens when you naturally catch a virus, so we judge it to be extremely safe, and the only long-term effect is you become immune to the virus and hopefully therefore won't become ill if you encounter coronavirus for real. Luke, thank you very much for that question. And if anyone else would like to ask us a question, feel free to get in touch. We're on Twitter, The Naked Scientists, also on Facebook. And you can send questions by email to chris at nakedscientists.com. Now, meanwhile, our enormous thanks go to John, Monica, Michelle, Kevin, Celine, Mark, Andrea, David, Lauren, Ed, Derek, Keith and Shelley, who all became donors for us this week. This makes an enormous difference to us and it helps to keep the show on the road. So please, if you enjoy this programme, do consider supporting us. Go to nakedscientist.com slash donate. Every little helps and if you can become a regular donor, we'd be especially grateful. Thank you. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. In the second half of today's programme... That is Ludwig van Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and we're playing it because this December is the 250th anniversary of the man's birth. (laughs) 
Beethoven was a technical pioneer of his time. He was the first great composer to actually specify how piano pedals ought to be used in music. He was also one of the first to embrace the use of metronomes and mark up his score accordingly. And he even found a way to conduct sound through his skull bones to overcome progressive deafness. No doubt his mind would have been blown by today's cutting-edge musical machines, which are even claimed to be creative in a way previously thought to be unique to humans. So have computers made Beethoven obsolete? We'll listen to some examples later, and you can judge for yourself. Before that, though, we're looking at how maths and computing can analyse Beethoven's music in the first place. There's no doubt that he has inspired generations of musicians, despite Chuck Berry telling him to roll over. You can hear his flourishes in the samples of the rapper Nas, and subjectively his style in the instrumentals of bands like Yes and Pink Floyd. But objective statistical analyses can tell us even more and suggest that he may, for a century or more, have been the most influential composer around. I heard from statistical physicist Ju Yong Park, who's been mapping out the similarities and differences between the notes in different pieces of classical era music to try and pin down into maths what is an abstract concept. We're trying to find who is the most creative composer. And of course, in order to be creative, you actually have to have new elements that you introduce that had never been used before. But one of the problems with using only novelty as a measure of creativity is it's actually pretty easy to try something new, just find something that hasn't been used before. So we actually have two measures or two elements of creativity. One is novelty and another is influence, how much you inspired others who come after you. This is sort of your model of creativity then, is how much new stuff you tried and how much people liked it. Yes, you can uh, say that, of course, this doesn't really, you know, cover everything about creativity. But I think these two are very uh, sort of essential ones when we talk about how to model, how to measure creativity. We compared compositions by 19 uh, composers, all the way from the earlier ones from the Baroque era, like Haydn and Bach, to the late Romantic ones like Rachmaninoff. And what we discovered was Beethoven was the most influential composer on the evolution of music after his time. How can you tell? We're actually looking at not just one note at a time, but one note and the one that follows it. Let's say you just play Do, Re, Mi, Fa. Then we're looking at Do, Re, so one transition, Re, Mi, one transition, and Mi, Fa, one transition. And those transitions actually is like a fingerprint of that uh, uh, composer. And depending on how common those elements are, we can actually determine how similar the composers sound. Were the same people both really novel and really influential? Or who was what and who was the other? Novelty and influence don't necessarily correlate perfectly. Beethoven is actually not the most novel but the new things that he actually tried were actually widely accepted by the others who followed it. And his influence remains number one for many decades after his death. How much of creativity do you think that you've covered in this analysis? Because obviously it feels instinctively like it's quite a human concept that you can't translate into a computer. Yeah, the words like creativity actually brings up a lot of thoughts in people's minds, a lot of ideas, because it you know means a lot of things. Some people say, okay, that is what makes our civilization, you know, evolve. A good sort of analogy would be energy. To me, when I hear the word energy, I immediately think about, you know, half times mass times velocity squared, for instance. But to many people, energy actually does still mean life force. Like, hey, he's got a lot of energy. 
because we were able to come up with a physical theory of energy, we were able to build those great things and actually help our civilization. And I think creativity is in a very similar stage where we're not trying to sort of restrict the meaning of creativity, but actually we're trying to come up with a self-consistent, useful theoretical framework for measuring uh, creativity. And hopefully that will help us come up with new science and new technologies that actually help us be more creative. So interesting, I think, to hear scientists trying to pin down what creativity means. That was Ju Yong Park of the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology talking about his paper in the journal EPJ Data Science. Now, we mentioned yes, and uh, with us now is a legendary keyboardist and uh, member many times of yes. That's Rick Wakeman. He's also a musical pioneer himself on the synthesizer. Hello, Rick. Are you a Beethoven fan? Hi there. Uh, yes, I am a huge Beethoven fan. It was very interesting listening to that. It brought to mind that it's not just the notation that um, makes somebody unique or clever. It's sound is incredibly important, which has played a major part in all music as new instruments get developed. Uh, people forget Beethoven broke rules. In the Ninth Symphony, for example, he used a choir. Pretty much unheard of in a symphony. You just didn't have choirs. It reminded me then of... My orchestration professor at the Royal College, uh, uh, the late Philip Cannon, always said to me, right, we're going to spend the first year learning the rules and then go ahead and break them. But you can't break them unless you understand them. Beethoven was, was a genius at that, absolute genius. Well, you broke lots of rules in your time, didn't you? Curries on stage, playing with paint rollers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 had, I had fun with... Uh, one of the things that I always I wanted to do was... In my initial uh, days at the Royal College, popular music and, to use a, a body into one sort of box, classical music, were miles apart. And I didn't understand that. And I always felt that composers like Beethoven and coming further forward to Wagner, if they'd have had the joy of electricity and Moog synthesizers and, and other instruments, they would have thrown them in the orchestra. Because right up until the beginning of the 20th century, when a new orchestral instrument came along or an instrument came along, it was thrown into the orchestra as they developed as well. But it seemed that when electricity helped the likes of Bob Moog and all the weird instruments that they made electronically, nobody ever wanted to put them into the orchestra. And I always felt that people like Wagner certainly would have done, and Beethoven actually would have done as well, would have thought, oh, this is fantastic, we'll have some of this. Um, <laughs> so I thought, well, they're not around to do it, so I'll have a go. But it was really hard because to try and get the classical world to understand what I was trying to get at and trying to get the popular world, the rock world, trying to understand what I was trying to get at was quite difficult. And I think the secret is not just creativity in, in notation on how you put pieces together, although that certainly does, you can recognize somebody's style. I don't think you can recognize their creativity. I think you can recognize their style. But it's also their use of sounds. And certainly in this day and age, there is nothing almost that you can't do. Do you think that the 1960s and 70s were a watershed moment then? It was a new era in music when these amazing machines, as they were at the time, came along, like Bob Moog's synthesizer and Mellotrons and things, which, I mean, that you took yeah. that to David Bowie and, and played on Space Oddity with that. I think you had to learn to play differently because it was such a, an unreliable machine, wasn't it? It was incredibly unreliable. Like, like most technology, when it first appears, it, it has, has lots of gremlins. But I, I, I think the major watershed moment as far as electronic music came when Bob Moog, Dr. Bob Moog, built his first Moog synthesizer. 
Because he wasn't keen uh, on the word synthesizer, was he, to start with? He tried. No, he, he said it. he said he wanted to call it something else, and in the end, he acquiesced and said, "Okay, we'll call this a, th- a synthesizer." Yeah, he always felt that a synthesizer was trying to create something that already existed, which was not true. He was creating an instrument with its own right and sound. That was very typical, Bob. It's like if you asked him, "Do you pronounce your name Moog or Moog?" He'd go, "Whatever you want." <laughs> uh, but he was a one, wonderful, bumbling old professor. I loved him to bits. We were great, great friends. He had three daughters and could never remember their names, so they became known as Minimogue 1 and Minimogue 2 and Minimogue 3. <laughs> I was just going to say, talking of creativity, what, what do you think the future holds, taking this amazing technology we now have? What do you think the future holds for us in terms of, of music? And, and do you think computers can give Beethoven a run for his money? Or do you think that, that someone like you is no, always think, going to be able to push the envelope? I think there's a simple answer. You should make the technology work for you, not you work for the technology. So if you're writing a piece of music or thinking of one and it needs the technology to make it work, use it. If it doesn't, don't use it just for the sake of it being there. Rick Waitman, thank you very much indeed. It's been a huge pleasure. Right now, we're celebrating the 250th birthday of Beethoven by looking at the music technology that he might have used were he alive today. We've heard how computers can both analyse and inspire creativity, but are they starting to turn the tables on us and become creative in their own right? This field has certainly progressed far, at least according to creative computing expert Rebecca Fiebrink. She thinks that the scale of musical possibilities would have made poor Beethoven's head spin. I think you'd be astonished. Obviously, computers don't just allow us to replay music. They allow us to record it. They allow us to compose it and to use increasingly interesting algorithms to process and generate music within the computer. Is that true? An algorithm can actually generate music? Well, it depends on your definition of music, but I think we're getting very close, if not already successful, in having computer algorithms that generate patterns of sounds that people would identify as music and even very enjoyable music in some cases. You're talking here about machine learning, right? That's right. Machine learning is a set of computational techniques for finding patterns in data and then generating new data that includes similar patterns. And what are they looking for in the music? Is it which notes come after which notes or is it other stuff? Depends on what kind of machine learning you use and what kind of musical representation you use. One common way of using machine learning in music is to think about music as a sequence of notes over time. And this doesn't work equally well for all music, but if you want to get a computer listening to the melody of a pop song or a folk tune, then actually it's not too bad. Some of the current machine learning techniques that have just come out in the last year or so have been successful using a different representation of music, more like the representation of music that you would use if you stored a recording on your phone in order to listen to it. That representation of music is much more complicated, right? You're not just capturing the notes that are playing at which times they're playing, but you're capturing information about the instrumentation, the volume, the texture, like the way that a piano sounds or the drum machine sounds or the singer's voice sounds. That last one you mentioned boggled my mind. Can it really capture how a singer sounds? And can it recreate a singer as if it was that actual singer? Absolutely. And I would not necessarily have believed this even five years ago, but machine learning technology has moved so quickly. In April this year, a company called OpenAI came out with, it's called Jukebox. And one of the first examples I listened to there was 
a song, and I use that word loosely, but it's a, it's a new fake song sung in the style of Frank Sinatra called, I think it's Hot Tub Christmas. Can we take a listen now? Absolutely. It's Christmas time and you know what that means. Oh, it's hot tub time. As I like the tree this year, will be Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. It's <laughs> it's timely. It's actually a pretty fun song. I'm putting it on my Christmas playlist right now. And it sounds like Sinatra. You're saying those aren't samples of words taken out of different songs of Sinatra. Those are nope. actual bits of sound that it is generated to mimic Frank Sinatra. That's right. That's crazy to me. It is crazy. To be fair, this algorithm did not also do the job of coming up with the lyrics. The uh, researchers, along with their lyrics generation system, decided, oh, this would be fun as lyrics for a new Frank Sinatra song. I mean, Elephant in the Room, the backing mm-hmm. track sounds like a haunted funfair. Yes, yes. That is a limitation of this type of music generation algorithm. The OpenAI folks who made this system did some clever tricks to figure out how we could even do this at all. And one of those tricks involves some noise, like background noise, like you might hear from an old record. Some of it is going to have some weird stuff happening in the pitches that you hear. Things might sound, you know, not totally in tune. Given unlimited computing resources, do you think that they could basically recreate modern music as we know and love it? Or are there more fundamental limitations to an algorithm trying to be creative and make new music? I absolutely believe that these techniques are going to get better and better in the next few years, approaching the kind of quality we would expect from a recording of a real musician. There are a couple things that I still see as big barriers. One of the barriers is that it's really, really difficult to generate music that sounds believable in terms of the longer term structure. A Sinatra song is likely to have, you know, verses and choruses. When you look at classical music, you're going to have much more complicated structures, things like symphonies, where one theme from the first movement might reappear in a, a sort of changed way in the end of the piece. And these systems really don't have the ability to represent or generate structure at that scale right now. Another big barrier is these systems tend to be very hard for people to control. You can hit, you know, redo and have it do the whole thing again and come up with something different because there is randomness in these systems. But if you say, you know what, I'd really like this to be a little bit peppier, or maybe I want this to be in a different key, or I want there to be a trumpet in this song, right? There's all sorts of things that humans would want to do if you start looking at this as a tool for for making new kinds of music. Rebecca Fiebrink from the Creative Computing Institute. Now, one such company using these tools is Ava, who are using machine learning to compose what they call artificial soundtrack music. This is the kind of thing you might hear in the background of a video, for instance. The chief executive officer of the company, Pierre Barreau, is with us. So how does Ava work then, Pierre? So basically, Ava works in two steps. The first one is it looks at large amounts of uh, scores, thousands of scores written by different composers in order to infer some rules about how music is composed. It analyzes patterns in the melody and the harmony and the structure of the scores and the instrumentation and so on. 
And then using those rules, it's able to create total new pieces of music. The second step is basically to convert these uh, pieces of written uh, scores into audio that any consumer can uh, listen to and enjoy. And in order to do this, we basically sample and digitalize instrument recordings and stitch them together in order to produce a believable recording of the scores that were written by Ava. How does it sort of know when you're teaching it? How does it know what it should be producing with what sorts of vocabularies, what sorts of musical instruments, what sorts of notations? How does it actually learn and then and then produce something which is an accurate facsimile of, of what you've taught it to produce? Right. So we actually uh, classify the, the data that Ava sees into uh, different categories. For example, on the broad level, we start with style, but it also knows about other categories like the pacing of a piece of music. So is it a slow piece of music? Is it a fast piece of music? It also knows about instrumentation and the different instruments that are used. And it knows things like the structure of the piece. So using all of these categories, it actually uses that in the composition process in a way that the users of our product can actually say, I want a piece of music that's three minutes long, that's written for a symphonic orchestra in a cinematic style, and that feels uh, slow paced. There's still a lot of human input to this, though, isn't there, where you've got that coding being done by the human in the first place. Is that just because at the end of the day, we know what it is to be human and the computer doesn't? And so therefore, you need that kind of human input in order to to give the data the structure. But once it's got that, you're off, you're away. Yeah, I I would say um, the human input is necessary. And it's a bit like when I started learning about music, I had some teachers that were teaching me. And in the same way, humans are always going to be here to give additional guidance to computers in order to perfect the learning and make it more effective. So put simply then, if I want to reproduce something that sounds like, say, Mozart or Beethoven could have composed it, then I would basically educate the system with enormous amounts of the work of those composers and get it to then learn from them. And then I, having coded that input up appropriately, I could get it to reproduce something that sounds like a reasonable facsimile of of what one of those composers would produce. Absolutely. That's one way to do it. Another way is to, for example, give to Ava a very specific piece of music uh, by Mozart uh, if we're trying to recreate Mozart. And if we give to Ava one specific piece of music, it's able to sort of analyze the database and to say, here are all the compositions that I've looked at that sound similar to this one and use the specific material and and patterns found in those compositions in order to recreate something that's very specifically in the same style as one composition from Mozart. Now, given it is Beethoven's birthday, it's only fair to see what Ava made of Beethoven. So you've fed Ava a significant amount of Beethoven's music, and this is what Ava came up with when asked, can we have some Beethoven, please? The introduction is very reminiscent of uh, Beethoven's Fifth, those sort of romantic melodies. Also, the choices in harmony is very Beethoven-like. And if you asked it tomorrow 
to produce me some Beethoven, would you get a completely different result or are you going to get pretty much the same thing again and again and again? Is it is it a bit limited in its vocabulary in that respect? No, usually we get uh, very different results. Of course, it depends how we define Beethoven. Like if we say, I want something in the style of the Fifth Symphony, we're going to get very specific compositions that sound like the Fifth Symphony. But if we say, I want something that sounds broadly like Beethoven, we can get widely varying uh, outputs from Ava. And what do audiences make of it? When you play them this, have you done the sort of study where you take something you've made and subject it to audience scrutiny and say, who wrote that? Absolutely. So actually, um, this year, earlier this year, we were commissioned to write a piece in the style of Mozart. And this piece was performed in Japan, in Tokyo. And the orchestra basically performed one piece by Mozart and one piece, the piece that was commissioned by Eva in the style of uh, Mozart. And they were asked to tell which one was written by AI and which one was written by Mozart. And it turned out that 60% of people thought that the AI composed tune was a Mozart tune. You know, basically, uh, Ava won the Turing test. I would add um, an asterisk here because it all depends on the audience's familiarity with Mozart's works. And I think at the end of the day, what matters is that uh, those people went into the concert, enjoyed the music and had a good time. You know, sometimes people say, when will AI compose better music? I think that's besides the point. It's the real point, just like uh, Rick said, it's uh, how useful is it going to be uh, as a tool to help uh, creators? And are people going to enjoy the music rather than uh, when is computers going to replace human? <laughs> and you bring up Rick. I mean, should he worry? Should he be watching his back? Is he out of a job soon, do you think? Absolutely not. I think that even if uh, AIs objectively get better at composing music than humans, I think one crucial element that humans bring to the table is meaning in what they do. And an AI could come up with a new style of music, totally crazy style of music. But if there is no creative intention that can be explained, I think it's very hard for an audience to really connect and for this reason, I think that humans will always be the best at writing music, at least for other people. Good at producing and presenting podcasts as well, I'd like to add. Hopefully we won't be out of a job too. Thanks very much. That's Pierre Barrow, who is behind Ava. We've seen how computers have musical strengths and weaknesses that are very different from those of humans. And I've been to visit a musical project that no person today could ever play, or even fully listen to. Long Player is a thousand-year-long piece of music. Yes, you heard that right, 1,000 years. I went to see it inside a former lighthouse in London and meet its creator and former member of the Pogues, Jem Finer. Good Lord. That's incredible. Well, this is the sort of mezzanine level. There's a large circular system of shelves upon which are over 200 singing bowls. And they are the actual physical instruments from which long players composed. I'll be honest, I feel like I'm about to be reborn into some sort of ancient religion. Right. Okay. <laughs> What I was interested in was time as a much longer, slower process than a human lifetime and human experience. So 
how do you keep something going for a thousand years? If it's a piece of music, how do you keep it playing? What technologies do you use? So the source music is made up of singing bowls, sort of brass, handheld bells. They're common in many Eastern cultures. And you can play them in two ways. You can either strike them, but more interestingly, you can take a kind of wooden beater and run it round the rim, rather like you could rub your finger round a wine glass. There's six pieces of very short source music, 20 minutes, 20 seconds long, and each is composed of singing bowls and silence. My maths isn't amazing, but that sounds like about two hours, not a thousand years. So how do you get to a thousand-year-long piece of music? It's not like they're sort of all added together. What happens is that every two minutes, the algorithm chooses a start point in each of those six. So what you're hearing is a superimposition of six different sections. Each plays for two minutes, and then at the end of the two minutes, the start points move on. And the amount each start point moves on is different for each of the six pieces. The easiest way to visualizes it is to think of a diagram of the solar system so you see the sun in the middle and the planets arrayed out and they're all going around the sun at different rates so once in a few billion years they might all be in a straight line but it'll take a very long time until they're all in a straight line again so you're saying if i listen in a hundred years i might hear five of the pieces they're in exactly the same spot that i heard last hundred years but the sixth piece is going to be slightly different and you'll never get them all in the same place for a, a thousand years' time. That's what I'm saying, yeah. To be honest, if it was repeating, I'm not sure I could tell. I mean, a lot of jokers say, oh yeah, I've heard this bit before. <laughs> and in a way, they probably almost have. It's a bit like weather. You know, you've seen skies like that, but you've never seen the clouds exactly those shapes in those places. Is there a sense that this is more algorithm than composition? Um, well, it's certainly algorithm. I think one of the great things that digital technologies afforded is this idea that you can iterate through huge spaces of possibilities in ways that you really couldn't necessarily as a human. So I see it more as a sort of prosthetic aid to the composer to move into realms of music which um, they're sort of beyond human endurance to actually perform them in some way. Jem Finer there letting us in on a sample from about 20 years in to the epically long, long player. And thanks to all our other guests this week, Ju Young Park, Rick Wakeman, Rebecca Fiebrink and Pierre Barrow, who have showed us the incredible journey of technology in music. Well, that leaves us just with time to squeeze in question of the week. And this week, Eva Higginbotham has been fertile with thought with the answer to this question from Jordan. Why do females produce eggs inside the body at body temperature, but males have to produce sperm outside the body at a lower temperature? I put this question to Bill College, a reproduction expert. The first thing to say is that only some mammals have external, otherwise known as pendulous testes. For example, humans, Ahoy there! sheep, and dogs all have external testes. But elephants have testes located close to their kidneys. 
whereas whales and dolphins have descended testes, but they're not hanging out, which makes sense when you need to swim in a hydrodynamically efficient manner. Which is a good thing too, as North Atlantic right whales have the largest testes of the animal kingdom. They can be up to 900 kilograms. In contrast, all female mammals have internal ovaries for making eggs, perhaps because only a small number of eggs are produced at any one time, and so they are more precious and need to be better protected. Whereas millions of sperm are produced by males, so small disruptions in this process can be tolerated. One thing we know for sure is human sperm are fussy. Sperm formation for men requires that the testes are around a couple of degrees cooler than body temperature, and raising that temperature can cause problems. For example, wearing tight underwear so that the testes are held close to the body and at a higher temperature can reduce sperm numbers and impair fertility. The same goes for luxuriating in hot tubs. That means no more bubble baths if you're trying to conceive. But we don't actually know why sperm formation in species like humans with external pendulous testes is so temperature dependent. Clearly in some species, like the elephant, with internal testes, sperm production can take place at body temperature quite effectively. The process of egg formation in women doesn't seem to be temperature sensitive so there has been no reason to evolve external ovaries. One recent development has been the suggestion that producing sperm at a lower temperature might actually help with the process of fertilisation. When sperm that have been produced and stored at the slightly lower temperature associated with external testes are released into the vagina, they encounter a warmer environment. And this change actually boosts their swimming activity to increase the chance of fertilising the egg. It's a bit like they've been moved from a cold to a warm swimming pool and can now swim like a torpedo. I should give that a go next time I try and drag myself out for a swim. That was Bill College at the University of Cambridge. Next week, get your toaster and your bread knife ready, as we'll be answering this question from Mervyn. I'm wondering, is sourdough bread a healthy option? So can you help Mervyn to pick the perfect sandwich crust? If so, come and join in the debate on our forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And if you have a question of your own you'd like us to answer or delve into for you, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. There's also a web form on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash question. And I'm afraid that's all that we've got time for this week on the show. Next week, with a new batch of gaming consoles on the market, we're looking at the science behind computer games. What makes them work? And what makes them look so good? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Phil Sansom, and from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, until next time, goodbye! Goodbye!